The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Hello, uh, good evening and welcome to the Bristol Agenda, the news and current affairs show on BCFM 93.2 Community Radio Station. You are joined by me, Priyanka Raval, and our usual co-presenter, Tin Hinson, is up north somewhere visiting family. So it, filling his shoes very capably, we have Rohan Roy. You have the double burden of social media and presenting today. You must be exhausted. Um, um, I am exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> you make it look easy, but it's, it's not. Really, it actually yeah. is quite easy. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, and as always, follow us on our Twitter page at Agenda Bristol. Um, tweet us. We'd love to hear your thoughts and we'll read them out um, if they're, you know, good and you're always sure to post a cringy picture uh yeah today's well. is especially good um because it has you looking very flustered and uh <laughs> excellent producer valentin Scythe. thank you for joining us you are the star of bcfm show La- the latin window how are you today i'm i'm fine thank you thank you for having me always it's a pleasure to be with all of you <laughs> missing a little bit teen but yeah yeah we, we all missed him anyway so <laughs> we have an action-packed show for you today we are talking about the green soul saga which is kicking off as we speak uh, i speak speak to bristol's commissioner of race equality about their reaction to the Sewell report and up first we're going to have kieran catras demand a new normal who is talking about police and border force abolition and i tell you what we won't be talking about is the death of prince philip anyway we'll get started after this very topical song thanks What a tune. That was uh, Junior Mervyn with Police and Thieves, recorded in the 1970s, the song that became an anthem after the Notting Hill riots, as it spoke about police brutality against the black community, which is sadly a story that never seems to leave our headlines. It's a relevant story, as just this last Sunday, protests erupted near Minneapolis after a police fatally shot a 20-year-old black man, Dante Wright. Officers had pulled Wright over for a traffic violation. So, leading on from that, we're going to go to Kieran Katra with her episode of Demand's New Normal today, talking about police and border force abolition. Okay, we're talking about demands centred around our police service. In the UK, the police sits within the Home Office, and the Home Office is the lead government department for all things security. Currently in charge is our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and the Home Office strapline reads, The first duty of the government is to keep citizens safe and the country secure. That the Home Office has been at the front line of this endeavour since 1782. As such, the Home Office plays a fundamental role in the security and economic prosperity of the United Kingdom. We'll be talking about the validity of such statements, especially given recent events such as Black Lives Matter protest, the accusations of institutional racism against the police. Joining us in our discussion today is Sam Berkson, a poet, activist and teacher. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Just for our listeners, the call for uh, police abolition seems to have grown exponentially of late. I'd say um, in light of the BLM protests... Tell me, Sam, why is this your demand? I think because it's practical and realistic. As much as it seems like it's not, it, the, all the other solutions are not working. So 
the movement for black lives which has been you know an incredible rebellion across um the global north other movements maybe the movement in nigeria against sars there and against police violence there but maybe on the back of that too so it's had a huge effect on the world and it's brought to light what people have already known for a long time i think and people have known it instinctively because of their class because of their race mm-hmm. and activists have been saying it for a very long time that the police are not fit for purpose so exactly what you're saying you know what you start with with the home office's talk of we have a you know we're here to protect society you know and the police are there to serve and protect is the yeah. is the you know the motto in the american police but then you see the police there with the knee on the on the neck of a black man and and murdering him that's the reality of of the violence inherent in the policing system you know what do you do about it is the question and it seems to me and to a lot of people that the most like practical solution would be to the abolition of the police people got to take you back a few steps there surely mm-hmm. If, thing, if things don't work, we, we educate, we retrain, right? The Home Office there, they tried to say that police existed since 1780. So we have to recognise that they're quite new. Um, Relatively, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, only a few hundred years old, only 200 years old, right? And mm-hmm. the original, in Britain, like the first police were the Thames River Police, whose job was to protect the goods that were coming back from the colonies being taken by the dockers who were unloading them. So we see from the start their very purpose was to defend bourgeois property and bourgeois property that was extracted from the labour of the racialized slaves. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's where they came from. And the Metropolitan Police, Robert Peel's police force, was modelled on that. We see this time and time again. The experience of policing for young people of colour in working class communities is very different for middle-class people in affluent communities. I think I heard two things in, in, in what you're saying. The first is we feel like the police are here to serve us, but actually they're here to serve a power. Um, and you're talking about the protection of the rich against the working classes. And I guess if we take that a step further, we're talking about the protection of the state in its governmental institutions. So yeah. exactly who is it? that the police are serving. Yeah, I mean, I think you've pointed it out, really. Um, And I think most people recognise that. Like, in this country, you know, young black men are most likely to be victims of violence. But generally, young black men are not going to call the police to help them. You know, young people in in the cities of our country will will feel um, vulnerable walking home at night, but they're not going to call the police to come and help them because more than likely when the police come they will see them as the problem rather than the, um, you know, as the victim. The Not long after what happened with George Floyd, there was an incident on social media where some Coventry City football fans had pursued a couple of black men through the city and pushed them up against the wall and um, essentially, you know, and, and threatening them. They were, they were backs against the wall, up against a, a mob. The police uh-huh. came and arrested the two black men. Right. Mm-hmm. So instinctively, they sided with the lynch mob. Yep. Right. And they saw them as part of, the, the, you know, that was that's part of their the institution is to see them as like the delinquent class that needs to be controlled in order to protect society. So we we, are, we always have this division, which is um, inherent in the language of the Home Office, that there's society that needs protecting and defending mm-hmm. 
and then there's the people outside of society who don't count as being part of society right mm-hmm. and one way um in which they are one way in which that is achieved of course is through racism and the divisions yeah. of racism mm-hmm. um and the creation of a delinquent class so i think we have to you know okay so we say right if we didn't have the police we'd have um rapes and murders and violence yeah right? and sometimes it's not enough to point out the obvious fact that we have the police and we have rapes and murders and violence yeah and they haven't prevented them from happening right um i guess the counter argument to that is would there be more rapes murders and violence without the police yeah and that's so that's what you have to answer i think mm-hmm. um but if you know the increase in policing has failed to prevent crime mm-hmm. you know, and i don't think there's any there's plenty of academic studies that will show that more policing does not mean a reduction in crime yeah. right then we have to ask like why are they continuing despite their continued failure according to their stated aims and perhaps the answer is that they have another purpose other than you know preventing um criminality whatever it is I just want to um, read some figures that came from the Home Office last year in relation to what you've said. Mm-hmm. And the figures from the Home Office, um, these were released in 2019, reveal that only 1.3% of police officers in the UK are black. Black people were five times more likely to be stopped and searched by police and five times more likely to have force used on them in comparison with their white counterparts. Black people were also twice as likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act and almost twice as likely to die following contact with the police. The law and prisons and the police succeeded in doing is creating a delinquent class mm-hmm. right? um, and created delinquency. And this is something that I've got from Michel Foucault, the French philosopher. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he says, look, look at the prison movement um the like, prisons start pretty much at the change of the 18th to the 19th century around the time when pre patel's talking about or the home office is saying that they came into existence right mm-hmm. and contemporary with the establishment of the prison service is the prison reform service mm-hmm. right so from the very start people were like oh we need to reform the prisons because they're not um they're just producing a criminal class. You get all these people together, um, yeah. you know, they, then they come out and they learn criminality off each other. They come out of prison. They're not allowed to work. They can't have anywhere, to, you know, and they're forced back into crime, right? Yeah. So actually prison isn't working, right? That's no. what they said. From the, and they said that from the beginning, right? In the same way that people were saying that from, about the police from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? That it wasn't stopping crime and it was just ending up you know, being a, um, a way of harassing working class people in order to protect the property of the rich. And so that, but what it has succeeded at is creating a delinquency, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, delinked from the, um, the rest of society. And that, I think, and that um, delinking of a class and the creation of a sort of threatening criminal underclass means that a lot of society feels threatened and therefore feels the need for more state security to come in and deal with them i mean it's a it's a great way of keeping division going isn't it 
So what 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 is it? What's the alternative? I guess. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing that people are obviously going to ask us, yeah. right? And say, okay, right, you're criticising the police. You see them as exactly. a, a racial colonial um, institution that actually produces more criminals than it does mm. um, reduce violence. Um, what are you going to do instead? Yeah, and um, you know, there's there's plenty of way, plenty of obvious things that could happen to start with. Mm-hmm. Right, because prison because most abolitionists yeah. will not just say we get rid of the police overnight and that's it. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to look at other things that go along with it. So first of all, you need to end prohibition. Right, everybody knows that prohibition doesn't work. Right, and it, and it's a strange way that like when we talk about American prohibition on alcohol in the 30s, everyone says, oh, that was a disaster. Right, because it created a gangster class, it reduced the quality, like the the quality of the alcohol being produced, so mm-hmm. it became a dangerous substance. People still used it. Yeah. Right. Obviously, this is true for all other drugs as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And what is a, so it, again is an ineffective policy, and I think when we when we say something like this, we also have to remember that the logic and common sense is not going to win the argument, right? Because there's right. a class interest in maintaining laws like the prohibition of drugs laws, um, not because they actually think it's stopping drug use. Mm-hmm. Right? Clearly, it increases drug use, right? right. We, used to have, we used to have heroin administered on the NHS mm-hmm. in the 1970s, right? right? And we had a tenth of the number of heroin users that we have now. Right. If we had people taking... Um, Opium rather than, you know, criminalization has created heroin, whereas opium is, a, you know, a, a, a less risky version of the yep. same drug, right? Mm-hmm. Crack cocaine is a result of, um, you know, of criminalization. Yeah, Young. but so, Sam, you haven't explained yeah. what, why, why have we kept the prohibition laws? Again, I think it helps maintain a delinquent class, right? So you take, like, where I live in North London, mm-hmm. it wasn't that long ago um, that a pub, a perfectly functioning community pub that was surprisingly still working and making money right yeah and um, this time yeah yeah you know let's say it was, it was probably 10 years ago but it was it was working perfectly fine it got shut down because the police raided. The, there was a neighbor's complaint the police raided it and mm-hmm. they found some drugs on yeah. the floor right so they basically found a bit of weed that people threw on the floor when the police came in mm-hmm. right this um okay and then and this but unsurprisingly this is a pub that was a had a lot of black people in it yeah. right so it was a mixed pub but it had a large number of black people using it now mm-hmm. you could you those there's plenty of clubs in the same borough of hackney and pubs where you will find all manner of drugs being used in there but are frequented by white people mm-hmm. and those laws are not applied to them as soon as that pub got shut down the windsor castle all the black pubs in the area put signs on their doors saying drugs will not be tolerated you know making a clear sign that yeah. the police have been to them and said to them you know, yeah, there's a th- like we we can we can close you down if we want to. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, by the, all manner of populations use drugs, right? But people of colour and working class people are more targeted for their use of drugs than the rich and the white populations. So again, it gives an option for the police to stop a kid on the street, you know, and say. Uh, right, I need to search you. You might have drugs, and the good chances some of them will because across all class and race in this population under the age of fifty, you'll find a lot of drug users. Yeah, it seems that we are in dire straits in this country in terms of an economy. And if we could tax these drugs, we would have a lot of money in yeah. the um, in our public purse. And and if your argument is that actually we would rather keep a delinquent class than improve our economy. Um, that's a that's a rich argument. Yeah, I think you have to um, ask 
why do you keep doing things that are so expensive, right? If you're hmm. operating under the logic of capitalism, so why are you using prison so much? Thank you so much for joining us today. We look prisoner. forward to bringing you um, new you know, stories um, on a most weekly people basis. Sort of say, Have a what, good week. You know, what's going on? Like, why are we spending all this kind of money for something that's not working? And then you have to think, well, this is another reason why maybe it is working. Right? Mm. that maybe it does have results that they want which which i think gives us an idea of how difficult it is to change it as well as also how important it is to change it so when you say like, um sorry when you say it gives us results that they want then just not the results that were necessarily told that they want yeah exactly mm -hmm. so the war on drugs isn't about removing drugs from the street mm -hmm. uh, and I, I say that not as a conspiracy theorist but just looking at what's happened right because mm -hmm. the war on drugs has spectacularly failed to stop any like drugs being used and everybody can tell you that from the age of 14 upwards <laughs> The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Thanks to Kieran and Sam for a great interview there. I think it's, you know, given all the recent protests about the police and crime bill, we've had a lot of criticism about the police, but it's great to move that conversation on to now talk about, you know, what next. Uh, but we have a jam-packed show, so we're going to go straight into the next story about Green Cell Capital. Here's Tin Hinson to investigate. So the financial firm Greensill Capital collapsed earlier this month uh, with the loss of several hundred jobs in the UK. However, since then, the ripples from that insolvency have continued to spread. Most recently, they've cast doubt over the viability of Liberty Steel, which employs some 5,000 people and is regarded as vital strategic infrastructure by the government. Um, so we wanted to talk about this subject for two reasons. One, because I think the case illustrates a lot about how the financialized British economy functions today. And secondly, just because some of the revelations that have come out of this story are just astonishing. So somebody who's been on this tip for a while uh, is Riley Quinn, who I am joined by now. So Riley, just explain for our listeners, who were Greensill Capital and how did they get into this trouble? Just briefly, and we'll go into detail in a moment. Oh, so you want a brief answer, huh? I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that for you. I think the only way to explain Greensill Capital takes about an hour and four miles of red string. Um, so basically, if we want to sort of say at the top level from 40,000 feet, um, Greensill is a firm that engages in a practice called reverse factoring. Uh, reverse factoring, there is nothing particularly sinister about it. It's essentially just a way for a company to, instead of paying its suppliers directly, in engage with a financial firm or a factor who will then pay its suppliers on their behalf. And then the company sort of, instead of owing many suppliers what it would pay in invoices 30 days after uh, those invoices are sent or whatever, the company simply then owes the factor. Um, and what Greensill does, right, is they would say, okay, we're going to make finance fair. They always say that we're going to make finance fair. We have all this wonderful technology. It turned out they didn't. They just had like some shit they, they licensed from a third party. Okay. And we're going to stand between, say, Vodafone. Uh, vote, they were, their clients were big in telecoms uh, and then its suppliers. And so if you're a supplier of Vodafone, Vodafone one day says to you, hey, 
our invoice terms used to be, uh, we'll pay you uh, the full amount in 30 days. Well, our invoice terms now are we'll pay you the full amount in 90 days. Or if you work through our factoring partner, Greensill, you can get uh, 98% of the amount in 30 days. Okay. And that's sort of one of the things that they say, hey, please don't do this, but they do anyway. Um, so this sounds like all not exactly like that complicated. Like there is this, there is this sort of strange relationship where, whereby essentially a company can turn its own supply chain into a bank for itself. It financializes its very, very normal sort of day to day business. So I mean, uh, yeah, any of us who are self employed will be sort of familiar with. Uh, some of those cash flow worries there and uh, you know you've got some clients that tend to pay quickly and some clients that pay slowly and uh, so I suppose what Greensill Capital was saying they're doing is en- enabling everyone to to come to an arrangement a sort of mutually beneficial arrangement so everyone gets paid at least most of their money reasonably quickly. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> okay, so uh, where, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> okay, so look, there's a, a number of issues with, uh, with reverse factoring, right? Um, one of the issues with reverse factoring is that uh, you, when you borrow as a company um, in this way, it gets written down in, on your balance sheet, not as debt, but as operating expenses. Okay. Um, and so it, it can basically be used by a company to disguise... Uh, how poorly it's doing because a lot of the ways in which like a company will tend to get evaluated is they'll look at its ratio of like um of like debt to assets or or like or it's price or price to book or whatever and what you're looking at with Greensill is you can make a company look as though it is a lively firm with a lot of revenue coming in and going out. Mm. Um, well, actually, all it does is it has just this relationship with a factor that just pumps money through its balance sheet, essentially. Okay. And there are a number of high-profile collapses actually connected to this practice, many of which center back to Lex Greensill. So I think many people might remember the collapse of Carillion a couple of years ago, the collapse of Bright House, uh, NMC. See healthcare in the Emirates, um, a number of other firms as well. But like Carillion would be the big one in the UK. Um, it wasn't a Greensill client, but it was the client of a government reverse factoring scheme that was set up by David Cameron, who was advised by Lex Greensill. Right, the uh, billionaire Australian in charge of the whole thing. Yeah, so Le- Lex Greensill um, was introducing himself as a senior advisor to the prime minister. He had a he had a, a number ten email address, and he had sort of business cards, and um, yeah, it was a, a close confidant of David Cameron. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you you there are a number of different characters you can center in this story, right? Um, the two that sort of appear, I think, most often are Lex Greensill and Sanjeev Gupta from Liberty Steel. Right. And the thing about Greensill is that there is that they, neither of them really exist at the level that they were able to get to in the last few years without one another. Greensill essentially um, was able to get these relationships with people who would purchase his supply chain notes because many of them, what he would do, right? is Greensill doesn't hold a lot of money. Greensill's not a bank. It owns a bank, or owned a bank, rather, in northern Germany. Um, But it's not itself a bank. It is a, quote, tech company. And when you're a, quote, unquote, tech company, that means regulations basically don't apply to you. 
that's why you know Uber or whatever is able to skirt minimum wage laws because oh we're not an employer we're a software provider. Greensill it's like oh we may be involved in a lot of lending but actually we just provide the infrastructure the software infrastructure that enables the lending. Right. Um, so they are able to basically act like a bank but never basically be regulated at all. Um, okay. And so what Greensill would frequently do is he and Sanjeev Gupta would come up with almost like Bugs Bunny level or Wiley Coyote schemes, um, often to get money out of the government. So what one, one example that leaps to mind is a few years ago, the government had a green energy subsidy. Hmm. There was a, some kind of green energy incentive. And uh, Greensill and Gupta um, purchase, create sort of facilitated the creation of a bunch of um, shipping containers with biodiesel generators in them and then so and then basically secured that funding in theory and then were able to sell tradable instruments against that funding so you basically securitize something which means you make you create a product that can be traded on like a financial instrument so like a stock or a bond or whatever think okay. of it like they created a bond but this is a supply chain financing debt instrument they would then write that contract. That contract now is value. You can trade it. Um, and that contract was on the basis of future expected revenue uh, based on subsidies for these uh, little red shipping container boxes with biodiesel uh, generators in them. And the whole point is they were essentially able to like look at these streams of public money. This happened in Scotland mm -hmm. as well. With a, um, with a, he purchased a steel mill, uh, Gupta did, on the basis that then he had a guaranteed, he had a, a, a purchase. I had a, I believe it was a purchase guarantee from the Scottish government in relation to power, okay. um, in relation to that steel mill. Then he was again able to sell on those subsidies through Greensill by essentially securitizing that future transaction. So I mean, if you want to think about Greensill as like the perfect exemplar of sort of you know post 2008 neoliberalism mm. it's that what Greensill was incredible at was kind of magicking money up out of nowhere that was actually connected to to economic activity that was only happening on a pro forma basis at best wow. right so so why did anyone give him any money or, or why did anyone give Greensill Capital any money? I mean, um, it, what was it that made them credible in the first place? God, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, there are a number of reasons. Um, number one is that a lot of what of the business Greensill did was uh, very sort of blue-chip. So, like I said, telecoms were big in supply chain financing. He claims to have essentially created the modern practice of reverse factoring as a banker. Uh, with City in London in 2000, and that he left in 2010 and largely set up Greensill Capital to service Vodafone, who had been a client of his in City. Um, and basically, what happens, right, is that if I, if he'll walk up, and this happened with like you know, Credit Suisse or certain asset managers who want to take on certain kinds of fixed in, want to take on certain kinds of risk. And if you're, if I'm, okay, it's also, don't forget, we're in a very, what's called a low rate environment where a government bond pays you f nothing, zero. Right. You're, you're losing money on inflation if you put money into a government bond. And there's something actually, like this actually should be a helpful um, sort of insight about just basics of how investing works, is that you only ever invest in things relative to other things. So you say, okay, well, um, 
as you don't say, oh, wow, stocks are high. You're like, okay, well, what's the spread between like stocks and bonds okay. um, at a very basic level? And so if, if bonds are like making no money, right, because because that's just like what the world we live in forever now and the economy collapses if they do, apparently, um, is that uh, in, uh, asset managers who are managing often hundreds of billions of dollars need to put that money somewhere and they need to guard it against inflation mm-hmm. that they're concerned might happen. Um, so they're like, okay, well, we can't buy bonds. Um, debt levels are for nothing, but check this out. We can be Vodafone's supply chain. So a fund manager can say, oh my God, we can get like 2% of all of what Vodafone spends. Mm. Fantastic. Sign me up. Uh, because like that's 2% a great, a great mm. return in Vodafone. What are they going to do? Not pay their bills? Mm. It's basically like free money. And this was, this was kind of the same logic that, per, that came into the 2008 crisis in the American mortgage market, mm. where people say, okay, well, what are people going to do? Not pay their mortgages? That would be crazy. And then slowly... The all of those bonds um, became less and less full of performing mortgages and more and more full of non-performing mortgages. Mm. And then once someone kind of started paying attention, then it, the whole thing looked increasingly like a house of cards. So, what's happening with Greensill is, yeah, like initially, maybe so. Initially, yeah, maybe it does look like um, you're investing in Vodafone, mm. but increasingly, what you're investing in is actually Sanjeev Gupta's companies, uh, which. Are in, which look quite a bit like a house of cards, especially increasingly mm. so recently. Um, so this well, actually so, resulted. So, sorry, go ahead. so the opportunity for uh, fraud, which is being alleged here, so the Financial Times is running a story on this, is basically that um, uh, that that Sanjeev Gupta's firm, uh, GFG Alliance, was supplying fake invoices uh, to Greensill and then uh, yes. borrowing against the fake invoices. Is that right? I believe these were referred to as system... Or no, these were fake companies that were referred to, quote, as system-generated truncations when they were approached uh, by an auditor as to why this was. And this was a year ago, like almost a year ago. Okay. This has been going on for a while. Like, there are recent allegations against Gupta that have come out recently about this invoice thing. But like... The whole system-generated truncations fracas, where Greensill was asked to explain, wait a minute, who are these companies you've been lending money to? Do they even mm-hmm. exist? And he was like, oh, we looked them up and they don't exist. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, that was the computer. It made a mistake. Okay. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> so that was uh, Riley there from Trash Future Podcast, doing a great job of giving us the detail on the Greensill Capital story. This is a developing story. Uh, Mr. Cameron has replied and said that he has not broken any codes of conduct or lobbying rules. And just hours before the show, the government said they will run an independent review into into the behaviour. Uh, but the Labour Party have said that this is doesn't really go far enough. What do you, haven't they, bro? Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, do we have much hope for the current government, uh, you know, investigating properly, um, given that it's made up of those people in the cabinet that Cameron was in? I don't know. I think we're looking forward to another kick down into the long grass. Yeah, that is what they said, that, uh, you know, Rachel Reeves, the shadow cabinet officer, said that this is just the government uh, attempting to brush under the carpet or cover up the scandal of cronyism. I mean, it doesn't look good for the government in terms of, you know, the crony contract scandal, which is always developing about how, you know, Matt Matt Hancock and, and the government gave away a lot of these contracts to... You know, people in there in a circle. So, are we are we really surprised by this story? Uh, uh, yeah, no. I mean, it just 
you know, it looks like this country is going down the way of um, of a kind of pork barrel politics, give to your mates, public money to private interest country. And, you know, there's a big C word. It's um, that, you know, might be lit- litigatable, but it's, you know, it looks a bit corrupt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's interesting to see, you know, newspaper reports recently saying, you know, that he texted Rishi Sunak. He went for a private drink with Matt, and ha- Matt Hancock. I mean... Uh, it's definitely some some insider trading going on there but um, I'm really keen to get to the next interview before we wrap up on the show Uh, I spoke to Yuella Jackson who among many things uh, is part of the Commission on Racial Equality at Bristol City Council Uh, it was set up just uh, after well during the Black Lives Matter movement of last year Um, and I wanted to ask her about the Sewell report which has been causing controversy which among other things concludes that there is no more institutional racism in the UK. Here's what she had to say. CORE is is a mayoral commission um, for race equality um, in Bristol and it was set up by um, Marvin Rees um, to look at race um, and ethnic disparity and discrimination in Bristol. Um, this is kind of the second iteration of CORE, so there was kind of a, an initial group of CORE um, but this this new um, group that's headed up by Olivet Otele, um, she's the chair um, and she's an amazing chair I must say, um, um, it, we, we've kind of really kind of come together last autumn mm-hmm. and it's it's taken a while for us. We're a group of about 14 different commissioners from all over the city with a range of different expertise. Um, you know, we're looking at things like education, employment, um, health and, in a, you know, um, health disparity, um, you know, and, and really trying to um one get a, a sense of the the landscape in Bristol because we all have kind of different specialisms but then to really kind of deep dive into us um being able to um influence um I wouldn't say policy ex- explicitly, but um, influence kind of what happens in Bristol. Really, we want to be a body of accountability. So we want to work with different organisations within the city who are delivering on some of these things, um, whether it's making kind of meaningful partnerships or kind of being there to be like, you said you're going to do this and it hasn't been done. How can we make that happen? So, yes, it's been a, it's been a bit of a, a lovely whirlwind being on court. Yeah. And what what kind of um what kind of things has core done so far? Yeah, so I think at the moment we're really trying to like I said understand the landscape. Um there's a lot of data, a lot of kind of number crunching at the moment that's going on. Um so we have set up three strategic task forces um so one is on um economic and that kind of economy board we've got a um health and well-being board which i'm the chair of and we've got the education board so at the moment we're kind of focusing our energy into those three key areas um and we've been having meetings with different stakeholders across the city to just really find out what's going on in bristol um some of them are able to kind of help us with our kind of key questions but we're kind of just starting to have that relationship where we're um starting to have a bit of that accountability and interrogation um i think the the hope is to kind of build and expand these boards um to kind of invite key stake- stakeholders onto them um to ensure that core can be as effective as possible um but we're really moving into the kind of setting out key priorities for us as a as a as a commission um what we want to see happen by the end of our term um so yeah, that's kind of where we're at at the moment. 
Yeah, and when will the end of your term be? That's a really good question. I said that, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully they don't kick me off after this interview, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in terms of like what your experience on core has been like compared to what you know of the city, mm. uh, just, you know, as you well as yourself, is it, have you learned a lot more or have you been surprised by what you've seen in the city in terms of these kind of issues or is it a bit what you expected or... Mm, yeah, I think it's really great to be able to, because I work day to day in more of the grassroots spaces. Um, but after last summer, I was like, okay, I need to be as pervasive and as strategic as these inequalities are, because, you know, sometimes it feels like you're not really getting anywhere. Um, so part of joining Core was as part of that kind of promise to myself. And, and Core, it's been such a... It's been really interesting, I think, for me to to understand the landscape of Bristol. You know, um, although we're not really into the, we're not political, we're not a political commission. You know, we're 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 quite distant and attached from the the mayoral office as well. You know, even though we're a mayoral commission, um, just kind of understanding the the very like the the range of different people that are actually trying to do work in this space that might not have the same visibility as core. So us, I think we really want to kind of use our platforms to kind of um, to sh- shed a bit of visibility on on some of the work that people are doing. But also, it's it's a it's a really kind of weighty role you know it's a voluntary role there's a lot of responsibility and you know especially as everyone from the commission are from these communities that we're trying to serve um it means that you know we are kind of emotionally and professionally invested in 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 the work so that means that sometimes there's you know there's that kind of feeling of like we need to kind of look after ourselves as well in this but also it's really rewarding to have a, such a big infrastructure and in, and in, um support system in the in the sense of not just the immediate core team but then beyond you know the the resources that the city has okay i mean bristol has a bad because of that running me like it came out in that running me report right about like how entrenched the racial educational inequalities are in bristol and you're really Mm -hmm. like at the sharp end of seeing that in this commission right yeah definitely and and also you know this is a i think when i kind of first started taking notice in Bristol as, as a young person, um, you know, 2017, when that Running Mead re- re- report was talking about just the kind of um, the disparity in terms of locality within Bristol and how mm-hmm. divided, it, divided it is, um, you know, I always kind of speak to people as like, I say like Bristol's a tale of like 10 cities, you know what I mean? Um, and how can we empower those communities um, to kind of not not just to be able to kind of come together and make Bristol feel like one, which is, which is partially why the one city plan was established, you know, to kind of feel like there's some sort of cohesion there. But also, you know, how do we make sure that we empower those individual cities? You know, there's a lot of value in those individual little spaces and that, those little localities. You know, how do you make people feel that sense of pride of being from Bristol? So, yeah lots of lots of work to be done but yeah <laughs> I mean how how do you do that what does that look like or is that what you're sort of finding out in the process of finding out 
Yeah. So I think we like as as cool, we really want to empower those who are on the ground to do what they do better. Right. There are some organizations who, you know, who we're going to have to we're going to have to be more kind of like accountability, you know, that kind of looking over their shoulder. What are you doing? You know, always being that rod in their back or whatever. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's rod in their back. I don't think that's the same. <laughs> I don't know exactly what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot firmer. Yeah, rod in the back is quite. <laughs> but yeah, maybe we have to be that intense. But um, with other organisations, we really want to think about how we can bolster them, how mm-hmm. we can support them to do what they do well, um, and also think about where are the kind of strategic opportunities for them to grow. Um, so you know, I think at the moment we we have, even though we've been around since the autumn. We're still quite a new commission in terms of learning how we all work together, what everyone's resources are as individuals within the commission, how we can best support. Because I have a feeling that some people will be really great at kind of working on that, you know, matchmaking almost and thinking about bolstering partnership work. You know, I love community engagement. That's my day job. You know, thinking about that and others are more kind of suited to the strategic policy commissions. Like, you know, how can we how can we kind of see this on a a more of a bird's eye? view so Mm. yeah I'm excited to see how core really starts to flex its kind of muscles in terms of all of our strengths something that sometimes I worry about and I hope there's a hopeful answer to is like how much can we do when it does seem like these things are so historic so entrenched so systemic so like often in the power of national government Mm-hmm. Does it ever feel a bit like you're fighting a losing battle or how do you stay hopeful or do you really see or are you like motivated by the opportunities for change that you do see? Yeah, I'm not a swimmer. <laughs> I can only swim to save my life. But I know that when you are swimming, you know, you're. it's kind of like that idea of being in it, in the water and taking your head up for breath. And when you're taking your head up for breath, that's when you look at the strategic stuff. You look at how, oh, this is not going to be good. And then you go back down into the water and the water is the thing that you're, that you, that, you know, that's, that's the life, isn't it? That's the people. So I think the way I do it is, is, is sticking with the community, um, you know, not kind of getting too bogged down. And I know that probably that's, you know, might not be always the you know one of the best ways to do it you've got to kind of have a multi-pronged approach with these things um but it does feel there are times when yeah it does feel like a a difficult a difficult space to navigate but we know that we've got like there are more allies there are more allies than we think and I think part of the role is about finding them you know, and supporting them to support us because often people don't have capacity to support or people don't have, you know, we're always kind of firefighting our own fight, right? So it's about helping people to understand that this is everybody's fight, you know, and this is everybody's best interests are in this. So, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe if you ask me on a different day, there might be a different answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I really like that. That sewing metaphor, that, that's really nice. The Bristol Agenda, that was uh, Uella Jackson there from, among other things, the Commission for Racial Equality in Bristol. It was a really interesting um, 
interview with her I think we didn't we didn't get around to it in the clip but it was good to talk to her about um, I think maybe the the dismay that a lot of people mm. who are you know at, at the coal face of these sort of problems in Bristol how they felt about um, you know being told that institutional racism wasn't a problem when that really didn't fit with the the problems they were seeing in the city and also you know how she said that it was like a, a denying of a, a lot of people's reality yeah no absolutely but I, I think it, it was also kind of an it was also nice and I think it was really useful to hear her say listen we do you know that there are elements of hope out there there are allyships to be made and, and I think yeah it was it, it was it was a good message but this report has been hugely controversial, right? I mean, no end. Oh, of- for sure. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not in any way defending the report. The report, I think, uh, you know, I've seen. I think apparently, so twenty organisations um, who were cited in the report itself as evidence have now distanced themselves from the conclusion of the report. So, for sure, um, this looks like revisionist uh, nonsense to me. I mean, one of the things that I've heard people say is like. We don't need another commission on racial equality. Like, we have mm. the academic paper. You know, the literature is there. This yeah. was always going to be uh, a way of scapegoating or a way of, uh, you know, what's the word? You know, whitewashing, if you will, uh, the UK's... The way the way that racism works in the UK, which, which is, you know... Um, yeah, I think. Pervasive. Yeah, I mean, this is one of one of several reports that that has come out, and you know, as people have said, have what have they actually achieved? But I think it's also interesting now that Downing Street facing accusations that, um, you know, how independent was this report? Apparently, today in the Independent, eleven members of Core uh, are reported to have accused the government of bending its work to fit a more palatable political narrative, uh, claiming that the commissioners did not see the whole report before. Before it was published, so yeah, accusations I mean, like that are a bit interesting, aren't they? But they've they've gotten. I mean, if anything, like no matter what happens after this revision, uh, you know, corrections made, whatever. But the key thing is, is there was a, two days in the news in the newspapers as headlines that said the UK is not racist, and that is not going away. Yeah, and I think as I was saying to Uella, I mean, this is a really this is really convenient for a lot of people to believe that this cool. it, it's difficult to to handle. Uh, the, a reality where you know the whole country is racist and that means accepting that maybe we're all complicit in that in different ways or you know then it becomes a sort of responsibility that we have but of course it's much easier and much more convenient to believe that we're not right yeah right right yeah exactly i mean um let, let, let's just let's just talk real history that's that's what we want you know i don't want i don't we, we don't want to be soft pedal to we you know i think as a as a country we're an intelligent people we can handle hard truths so let's have them Mm. you know let's let's not um we don't and shouldn't ask for fairy tales yeah and the criticism just keeps coming a hundred windrush campaigners have signed a letter uh urging mr sewell to ditch the report uh saying that they're denying the experiences of all those uh black British citizens who were stripped of their right to live and work in the UK, obviously during the the Windrush scandal. Um, And I think also, you know, again, it's something I talked about with Fuella, but we didn't manage to get to, um, was that it it does, she said it adds a layer of confusion that obviously Tony Sewell, the uh, well, the lead on this report is himself black and also Munira Mirza, uh, who is South Asian, who was also in charge of this commission, uh, had already before this report was even finished 
uh, had is known to have said that she believed that uh, you know institutional racism was was overblown and hyperbolic. So it sounded very much like they had the conclusion before they even started. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason they got that job, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, before we end the show, let's play a song for some light relief, shall we, Valentin? What we got, Val? We have a Love Bristol from Lady Black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Life's kinda 